Now, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and the Need to Lighten Up. And from where I'm looking, some of you really need this talk. <laughs> and the subtitle is To Be Light is to become enlightened. So the first question that we have to face is, what is man's true nature? And I've taken a quotation from the Gospel of St. John, which states this, and I'm sure we're all familiar with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent forth from God, whose name was John. And the same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, our true nature is light. And our purpose is to manifest that light within our lives. On death, everything goes dark. But in life, the body shines because of the light in us. The mind shines because of the light in us. And the heart shines because of the light in us. Everything known and perceived is lit up by the light of consciousness in us. Happiness is bright and misery is dark. Knowledge is bright and ignorance is dark. And life is bright and death is dark. And because I am light, my true nature is life or consciousness, knowledge and happiness. The question is, ordinarily, are you light or dark? The state of the wise man is that he is permanently light and casts light wherever he goes. As the Bhagavad Gita says, he does not afflict the world, nor is he afflicted by the world. So do you afflict the world by your presence, or are you afflicted by the world? An Indian sage called Swami Vivekananda, he said that if you wake up in the morning and you're miserable, you should stay in your room that day. You should not go out and afflict the world with your misery. And on that basis of some of us would spend an awful lot of the time in our room. So, are you light or dark? How do you present yourself to the world? And this is a horrible question. When you enter a room, does everybody brighten up? If there's any confusion about this, ask your husband or wife or children, or best friend, they will tell you with a horrible truthfulness. 
Ask them, do they consider you to be full of light? Or ask them, what makes you dark, serious, and heavy? And one thing we should note is that often our moments of darkness cause mirth or light in others. And I've told this story before. When we lived in this particular house, there was a very small front garden and it was just plain grass and I thought it looked pathetic. So I thought I would brighten up our lives by planting all these tulips. And so I bought tulips that grow to 6 inches, to 9 inches, to 12 inches, some that were early bloomers, some that were late bloomers, pure colors, variegated colors. So there were hundreds and hundreds of tulips. The soil must be reasonable because they all came up. So it was an absolute array of color. And we went out for a drive on a Sunday, and when we came back later in the afternoon, there were about three or four hundred tulip heads, each with about a two-inch stalk, just on our front door. And a little boy from next door came running up to the car and to me, and he says, I cut them for you. <laughs> you see, I knew you'd laugh. But for me, it was a dark moment in my life. If he had handed me the scissors, I would have cut his head off and put it at his front door. So consider the state of the child. Is it not full of light? Does not a baby, when it enters the world, make it a brighter place? Doesn't the light shine from its being and into all its actions? Do not others lighten up in their presence? So how does this compare to our state and our effect on others. Are we dark, heavy, and serious compared to a child? And if so, how has this come about? It is not natural. The state of the child is the natural one for all mankind at all stages of life. It is the key to the entry to the kingdom of heaven Otherwise, we shall in no wise enter therein. So in what ways do we become dark, heavy, or serious in practice? Some do when their football team loses. Some do when the weather is bad. Some do when the traffic is heavy. Some do when there's no parking space available. Some when they do not get a promotion or lose their job or when a loved one dies. It does not have to be significant for the light to dim, albeit temporarily. It can be caused even by tulips. Now, I reflected to see what I go dark over, but there isn't time enough to tell you all of these things. They're all extremely <laughs> profound, so I'm going to give you a few of them. So my light goes out when salt cellars and pepper grinders do not work. <laughs> when the cap is off the Tipex bottle or it's not screwed on properly. When I get a stain on a sieve tie, particularly when I'm eating spaghetti. <laughs> and a little voice said, before I started to eat the spaghetti, protect the tie. <laughs> and I ignore it. <laughs> anyway, one red dot on a yellow tie is not too bad. The next one is being given 15 minutes between receiving the menu and the waiter taking the order. It takes me under a minute to decide what I'm going to eat. 
And the last one is people saying their mobile number on your voice messaging system so fast. <laughs> you have to replay the message about 15 times just to get the number. And the worst of all is when the, that person says, I will just say that again, and they say it at exactly the same speed. <laughs> now, what is different in us compared to the child, since we are darker or shadowy to some degree, and the child is light? What have we taken on that the young child does not? And there are two fundamental aspects. The child lives for the present moment. We live for the past or the future. The child cries in the present and laughs in the present. And when something happens, it is over. Nothing leaves a mark, and thus it is free to enjoy the now. Also, the future is not valued by the young child. It doesn't value holidays, which are going to happen three months hence. It doesn't value pension schemes or burial plots. It does not understand your excitement about future events, for the child now is too blissful to leave it. And the second differentiating factor between us and a child is that for the child, life is a play. For us, life is serious. Even our play is serious, competitive. We are played with the need to improve, or the need to win. We have two worlds, work and play, and we seek to minimize one and maximize the other. But the child lives only in one world. For the child, it's all play. What we call work, the child sees it as play. Whether it be gardening, washing the car, washing up, going shopping, it is all play. With work, the result or the outcome becomes the most important factor. With play, the playing is the most important factor. We should enjoy life or living, not the outcome of living. We are carrying a burden and there is no need. The example that is often given is of a man carrying a suitcase while standing on a train. It is completely unnecessary. The invitation of Jesus was, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light, but we have not taken up the invitation. Now the light cannot become dark because darkness is not its nature. So we are light, and always will be light. But a shadow has cast itself over our existence, and a burden has been created where none need be. So how has this shadow been created? Well, fundamentally, we have turned our back on truth and embraced falsehood. And there are two primary aspects to this falsehood. First is impure reason. And this appears in many ways, but the first aspect of impure reason is frozen knowledge. 
Not knowledge which arises in the moment, but knowledge which is frozen in our being. And this expresses itself as my way of doing things. Not a way of doing things, but the best way to do things. In fact, the only way to do things. So everybody else is doing it wrong. It also expresses itself as how things and people should be. So we become extremely fussy. Now I happen to like hot chocolate for my sins. And about one in a dozen cups are just right. All 11 are dissatisfying. This frozen knowledge makes us righteous, condemnatory, and judgmental. People who have different values to me are wrong. Now the counterpoint of frozen knowledge, which is a false certainty, is doubt. Consider how much you doubt in life. It's all based on either I am not lovable or I cannot do. The second factor of impure reason is thinking that I'm something that I'm not. Thinking I am the body, mind amalgam, and thus forgetting that I am that that lights them. And this ignorance is virtually all pervasive. When describing myself, I refer to myself as young or old, tall, small, good-looking, ugly, fat, slim, white, black, etc., etc. I'm also either stupid, intelligent, confused, clear, full of doubt, decisive, etc., etc. It is hard to consider a moment when our identity is not related to the body-mind amalgam. And because I am the body, I am subject to disease and death. And this causes me worry and fear. Because I am the mind, there is much I do not understand. As the mind is always changing, I and others are also always changing. Yet what I want is constancy of understanding, constancy of relationships, and being the body-mind, I am separate from all other bodies and minds. Some I like, some I do not like. Some like me, and some do not like me. But all I have a relationship with in some way. And maintaining all these relationships is a terrible burden to me. I think I'm the doer. I'm burdened by all the doing. I just want time off, time for myself. I count how much I do, and I compare what I do in relation to others. And I always seem to be doing more than everybody else. I am better than some and worse than others. And I cannot stop comparing myself. So if you ask two men to paint a wall and you put them at opposite ends and they start painting away, within a couple of minutes they're looking to see how much the other fellow has done. 
Well, there's always somebody better or quicker than you. The third factor, which arises because of impure reason, is taking to be absolute what is relative. Now, only consciousness, or this light, is absolute. Yet we often take the functioning of the body, mind, as absolute. And there's nothing absolute except consciousness. And my son brought this home to me one morning very clearly when I was bringing him to school, and he was aged about five or six. I was stuck for conversation, so I was sort of making pathetic conversation with him as I brought him into school. And uh, at this stage of his life, he had a fixation with corn on the cob. So he would eat it for breakfast, for lunch, and for um, supper, and before going to bed, in fact. And I said to him, in order to have some conversation, isn't corn on the cob always lovely to eat? Very profound statement. <laughs> he looked at me with a certain sympathy, and he said, not when you have a loose tooth. And it just struck me that one makes these absolute statements, and they're not absolute at all. Now, taking the body-mind as absolute, we say things like, I am a mother, as if it was an absolute. Well, if so, children will bring you joy, and they will bring you misery. You will worry about them. You will pray for them, that they will be healthy. You hope they will do well in life and you will need them to love you. If you say, I'm a teacher, well, then children misbehaving burden me. Their results burden me, and I'm relieved when the day is over. When the role is taken as absolute, it is taken very seriously. It burdens and darkens me. All praise of the role uplifts me, and all criticism of the role has me down in the dumps or on the defensive. My role is my importance, my value, my existence. Note the fear that many suffer from in relation to what they will do when the children grow up or when they retire. And I suppose the question is, is it going to turn out like in the film about Schmidt? Now, the second aspect as to how this sh shadow or darkness has been created is to do with impure love. As with impure reason, where we got frozen knowledge, with impure love we get frozen feelings. And these manifest as unresolved issues which never fade away. Old hurts, and grievances which present themselves again and again to the mind. Consider how many people are met afresh, anew. How many do you meet as your own self? It also manifests as habitual responses which dominate our lives. These can be positive or negative but it sort of goes like this. You always say yes to a cup of coffee, whether you really want it or not. You always say no to a walk, 
without considering whether you wish to have a walk or not. You become so mechanical, in the end, others start answering for you. No, he wouldn't want that. <laughs> and your lips haven't even moved. <laughs> the third manifestation of this impure love is that our hearts are filled with preferences. What I really want, what I have to have before I will agree to be happy. And we make a mission out of it and get very upset if others get in the way or, or if prevented from attaining whatever it is. And then there's what I hate. This I avoid or postpone doing it. And more energy is expended in avoiding it than in carrying it out. Writing the letter is easier than not writing it. And because of what I hate, it biases or poisons the whole viewpoint over trivia. Recently, I met a man who left this country because of the weather. That's trivia to leave a country because of the weather. The fourth aspect of frozen feelings is that the heart becomes hard. And this hardness manifests either as meanness or coldness of heart or just simple indifference to the needs or sufferings of others. How difficult would you find it to give away that which you have in surplus, just to give away your surplus. How much time will you give to those in need outside your family and acquaintances? How easy is it to let someone jump the queue? Would any of you vacate the seat tonight and let somebody else in? Or to let people out in traffic? We are absolutely aware of the needs in the world, but do we respond? It all seems too much. Looking after me and mine is all I can manage. The third effect of impure love is that negative feelings burden the heart. Purity, magnanimity, generosity, compassion. All of these are replaced by greed and anger and hate and envy and jealousy and spite, meanness, impatience and worry. We all have a favorite negative emotion, one we specialize in. So what's yours? Consider how impatient we are, how irritable over little things we are like hot chocolate. How much is not to our liking. How much we want to be different than it is. And how much we give out of it. Imagine how silent our lives would be if we stopped giving out. All of this negativity denies the light in us and makes us dark. Impure reason and impure love denies man's nature 
and takes him or her into darkness. They take us into the past and the future where consciousness does not shine and where all our troubles reside. Now there's a quotation from the Shankaracharya, an Indian sage. He's the man that the school put all its questions to. And in the book Good Company, where he entreats us to come out of the dark of the past and future into the light of the present. And I'd like to read it to you. The present moment is the imminent absolute. And in the present moment, he comes in his form in front of everyone. And that is the moment for everyone to appreciate the absolute. The concept of past and future is involved with worldly affairs. So when one thinks of the past, one is deviating from the absolute, which is present. And one is trying to have certain relationships with worldly things. When one is planning about the future, then one is deviating from the present absolute. There is a Sanskrit verse in which it is said, the absolute is here in the present. See, enjoy, and communicate with him. And do not bother your head with the past or the future. You cannot bring the past to life. You cannot tailor the future as you want, because both things are beyond the control of the individual. So we should bother our head least about the past and the future. With the memory of the absolute, we should try to make use of the present with all the glorious things which the absolute is here to offer in the present moment. The present is always lit because it is the presence of the absolute and the light of the absolute falls on the present. There is nothing to worry about or fear in the present. Past and future are very dark, and that is where the fears are. And it is only fears of some sort which drag individuals to the past or the future. It is much better and more economical for us to avail ourselves of the brilliance and the light and knowledge which are of the present and not to associate ourselves with the darkness which really belongs to the past or the future. They visit us and concern us sometimes. Whenever we wake up and find that we are traveling towards the darkness of the past or the future, please come into the light of the day, the light of the present. So as a result of this impure reason and impure love, what sort of life do we live? Fundamentally, if it is not dark, it is at least full of shadows as opposed to being full of light. Some of us are like Christmas lights. One minute we're on, then we're off, then we're on again. Our impure reason 
forces us to spend our lives trying to make things happen in accordance with our false knowledge. We have the arrogance to think we can control the creation. And so we are surprised if someone dies young or if there is an accident. So much energy is invested trying to control events and people. Consider how much we try to get our wife, our husband, our children to behave in a particular way. Surprisingly enough, they appear to have a will of their own, which they seem to prefer to ours. We plan so much and control so little. Has your life turned out as you planned it? We are so particular about my way of doing things, letting nature take its course and in its own time is deemed too risky. These small, tight ideas make us fussy and irritable over the smallest things which lead to petty criticisms about so much. We have ideas about what perfection is. In fact, we are experts on perfection. We cannot deliver it ourselves, but know how others should do so. We are like some taxi drivers who speak as if they can run the world, but act as if they can only drive a taxi. Because this frozen knowledge is false knowledge, there is considerable doubt and fear in our lives. We find it difficult to follow events and accept outcomes and the advice of others. Life is dark instead of light, and we are dark instead of light. Our impure love forces us into a life of excessive desire. These we chase in a never-ending pursuit of happiness. And this wanting more means that we never truly rest. We believe when we have it all or enough, we will then rest. Well, is there anybody in this room with enough? Who are happy to say, no more, please, I have enough? How many do we know who can say they have enough? So we have to keep going. We cannot let go of these desires, and because we do not let go of the desires, we do not let go their counterpart, the aversions. So all the events in life are met with either a desire or an aversion. And from this holding on, comes the retention of negative emotions. Hurts are allowed to last days or years. Disappointments or grievances are not forgotten. And fears are not overcome, but just avoided. And we keep going, hoping that the fulfillment of our desires will bring us the contentment we have always been seeking. It's like a donkey with a carrot. The last thing the donkey will see before it dies 
is the carrot. What are you going to see? Every night we put the burden down in order to sleep. But why do we pick it up again every morning? If we put it down at night, why not put it down during the day, once and for all? Well, there are many reasons why we won't put it down once and for all, and they are all incredibly stupid. The first is, it's all that we have. The known is deemed better than the unknown. Certain misery is preferred to possible bliss. One married woman came to me on a number of occasions and for the entire duration of the time she spent with me, she gave out about her husband. It was just a continuous stream of giving out about this man. So I said, not seriously, but I said to her, well, why don't you leave him then? And she says, well, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. The second reason that we do not put down this burden is the power of habit. Knowledge is not enough. It's not enough to know that cigarettes cause cancer or that biscuits will make you fat or any of these things. There has to be a real determination if the change is going to take place. And this is greatly assisted by faith in the advice of the wise and appreciation of the need for change. The third reason is that sometimes our burden is our identity. So we nurse grudges. Imagine nursing a grudge to try and make it a healthy grudge. Some people are happy only when they hate. Some people cherish their illnesses and prefer the illness to the cure. Again, I've told this before, but I found myself sitting in a foyer of an office block in the UK somewhere, and there was a security guard in the foyer, and I was there waiting for about 10 or 15 minutes, and after a couple of minutes he said, I have a bad heart. So I said, oh, well, it's very interesting. <laughs> he says, yes, very bad. And he said, I had a horrendous heart attack. I have to take these special pills. And he showed them to me, his special pills. He went on and on and on about how bad this heart attack was and how it could easily return and how life was very precarious. But you could actually see it was this bad heart which was keeping him alive. <laughs> this, was the, this was the only fun he had left in life, to be virtually at death's door all the time. Without this bad heart, he was just a security guard. The fourth reason is that we are so used to the dark, we're afraid to step into the light. We are really afraid of our greatness. We know that with that, stepping into the light comes great responsibility, and we would have to live a much bigger life. And in the end, we just might have to admit that we are divine. So, 
how are we to manifest or live or experience this light which is our true nature? The first thing to appreciate is that we are light. We are consciousness, which is ever shining through the heart, mind and body. On death, the consciousness no longer shines through the heart, mind and body. And that is why they go dark. If the heart, mind and body are dark while we are alive, we are already half dead. Our light never diminishes, not even on death. On death, it just departs. While alive, if living under ignorance, under darkness, then the human instrument does not reflect the light, but hides it. Then our works do not glorify our Father, which is in heaven. This darkness is a denial of our true nature, our true nature is pure knowledge and pure love. In pure love, all is one. There are no preferences. And what operates is not my will, but thy will. In pure knowledge, one knows that one is eternal, unaffected by the events of life, ever blissful and not dependent on anything. In pure knowledge and in pure love, all is light. And the need is for what we truly are to manifest constantly in our daily lives. We need our nature to shine through our being, to let our light shine before men, so that they may be reminded of their light. In practical terms, we need to grow in love, to dissolve the barriers that exist between ourselves and others. We manage to do it in families. Now we need to allow humanity to be our family. We need to meet and treat everyone as ourselves. And this growth in love is greatly helped if we simply accept everything and everybody as they are i.e. is perfect. Secondly, we need to grow an understanding, primarily that this creation is a play. Life is to be enjoyed, not achieved. The idea is to express your light or happiness in the activities of life, not to extract happiness from the activities of life. Happiness is never found. It is expressed. The irrevocable decision we need to come to is that this creation does not provide lasting happiness. It is the playground in which you reveal the light or happiness which you truly are. The third thing necessary is that the idea of being the doer of actions needs to fall away. With doership comes the burden. In truth, you are the witness of all actions, not the doer of them. And the corollary of not claiming the fruits of actions needs to be established. Let the actions be carried out and let the fruits or results be for the benefit of all. 
and detachment is essential to lightness of being. Not isolation or coldness, but supreme indifference, knowing that I am above all, unaffected by all. Fourthly, we need to learn to live in the now, leave the past and present, leave the darkness, and come into the light of the present. Whenever the mind is observed to be feeding on the past and future, connect fully with the present moment. Give your full attention, connect with the senses. The past is dead and cannot be changed, and the future has not come and lives in the mind only as imagination. And finally, we should meditate, and we should perfect meditation. Meditation purifies the mind by dissolving ignorance and giving the mind the experience of the light of the present moment. It purifies the heart by dissolving desire and freeing the heart to love. The purified being then simply shines with the light that is its own self. As was said before, that Jesus' words were, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Well, my words are to lighten up. Don't be a drag on yourself and don't be a drag on the world. Become as little children and be a light unto the world. When you came into this world, you lightened up everybody. You are meant to make this world a brighter place. And it would be a fitting epitaph for each one of us. He or she made this world a brighter place. And that's it. Thank you very much. So, what would you like to ask? Thank you very much for an excellent lecture. Um, my question is simple, I suppose. Um, how can we realize the self now? Well, the first thing is to admit that you are that which is in presence now. And then to stay with that truth. So, if you ask yourself, well, what is present now? What is present now is a body. There's also a mind present. And there's also a heart that is present. And there's also that which is aware of the body, mind, and heart. And what practical philosophy says is that that which is aware of the other three is who you are in truth. And if the mind can be um, made or disciplined to stay with that awareness, then it stops wandering off into thinking I am a body, I am young or old, or I am 
confused or clear-minded, or I am happy or I am sad. So that's how you can do it now. And if it doesn't happen now, you simply practice that until it does happen now. Yes, anybody else? The, two, the three quarters of an hour that she had spent speaking to us before yes. we went for our break, I think it could all probably be condensed into the answer you've given to that first question. Yes. Would I be correct in saying that? Yes, but you would have asked for your money back. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the point I'm trying to make is that the average person, I think, would find it very difficult to follow every point. Yes. Many good points as the, mm. there were in your mm. presentation. But I think to have it condensed so succinctly is its brilliant, I think. Yes, well, absolutely. The reason it is constructed the way it is, you're not meant to take in all these points. You would go into overload and become darkened very quickly. <laughs> but what will happen for certain people because of their natures or where they are at this point in time, certain things will appear attractive or practical to implement. And other things, they say, well, I don't agree with that or that has no value to me. So if you take a room with 140 or 150 people, there's something in it for everybody. And that's the idea of it. In preparing a talk like this, you try to prepare it at all levels so that people can connect at all levels and so that nobody is left behind. Uh, just to take Christ, at one stage he summarized the entire teaching by saying to love the Lord thy God, and then the second commandment as well. But that's not sufficient. You have to then give lots and lots and lots of detail. Some people can't take it in its succinct form. So that would be the reasoning behind it. If it can't be summarized, then it's not really understood will need to be able to say it in a sentence and then to be able to expand on it. Yes, anybody else? Thank you for that presentation. Do you think we forge our destinies or do we sit and wait for it to come? Well, you create your future by how you live in the present moment. It's all determined in the present moment. So, if you drink too much on a Thursday night, well, you've created the future hangover for the Friday morning. That's the way it is. The time to decide whether you're going to have a hangover or not on a Friday morning is on Thursday evening. Man is not bound. There is nothing that can bind him unless he chooses it to be so. So, he can choose to behave in a way where consequences will befall him. Like so he can choose to overdrink and then get the hangover later. There is cause and effect. One of the uh, recommendations here was not to claim to be the doer of action and not to claim the results of the action. If you don't claim the results of the action, the effect does not befall you. It's like uh, if a man dies intestate, so without a will, and there are no relatives. Nobody can claim. It goes to the state. If man does not claim the fruits of his actions, they sort of go back to the universe. And the real key is to play your life 
and claim nothing. Claim not the errors and claim not the successes. Just enjoy it all. You know, if you watch a child, say, learning to walk, or say, let's say you were learning to ski or something like that, the tendency would be to count how many times you've fallen. And then a doubt would arise as whether you'll ever be able to ski. And you'd be watching other people and comparing. They seem to be learning much faster than you. Now, a child doesn't do that. It doesn't say, oh, God, I've fallen 15 times a day. I'm not cut out for this walking malarkey. <laughs> what I need is a two-liter pram, you know? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't do it. It doesn't count. It's very interesting to watch a child walking, you know, and it will fall so many times and bash its head off the side of a table. But it just gets up and walks and tries again afresh. So it stays in the present moment. It's not claiming the falling. And it doesn't also claim the walking. And okay, after a while, we master walking. And it will take place naturally. And we don't actually claim it on a moment-to-moment -moment basis unless we walk into a room where there's a dinner dance and it's all gone silent and we're the last person into the room. We have to walk across the floor. Then we claim the walking and we walk in a, you know, an extremely painful way because <laughs> we've now claimed it. Well, the idea is to claim nothing, absolutely claim nothing. It's to let life come to you and respond to it. And when the event passes, let it go. So the maximum age you should be is 24 hours old. When the day ends, it ends. This is why your know, relationships are so exciting at the beginning. It's so new and so fresh and people are unknown. But what we do is we bring with us memories and knowledge and all of this sort of stuff. And then we think we know the person. So we never meet them again. We only meet our past. And that burdens us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, there's a lady there. Um, do you really think that this natural state of bliss is achievable? Is it genuinely achievable? It's not achievable at all. Because you are it. You don't have to try. You don't have to try. You don't have to try to be happy. Any effort you make to be happy cause you to be miserable. And it's a very interesting thing to look at. Happiness requires no effort. Misery requires tremendous effort. <laughs> and the very simple proof is, if you're miserable all day and you go to sleep at night, it just falls off as you go asleep. It can't be maintained. Because when you go to sleep, no efforts are made. Does that make sense? And so when no efforts are made, the misery falls off. And sometimes, and I've used this example before, you, know, you have an argument with someone, and it's unresolved, and you go to bed that night still furious with the person. It all falls away. You wake up slightly bright with a bad memory. You can't remember that you're arguing with the person. So you greet them, have a delightful conversation with them, and then suddenly you remember, I'm supposed to be angry with this person. And then you have to work hard to become angry again. 
you'll find is that you can make efforts to be miserable. But once you stop making efforts, the misery stops. The thing is not to become happy, is to be happy. Becoming is too far away. If you ask people, when do you expect to become happy? Nobody says within the next five years. There's always some very far away time, no matter what age they are. And the reality is that death arrives first. That's going to come quicker than that happiness you're waiting for. The thing is to be happy now. You can all try it. You can try it right now. Just be happy now. And then decide that you will never, ever, ever leave that again. So it's just to be, is it? Yes. Just to be. Exactly. So it is one of the meanings of Hamlet's famous statement, to be or not to be. You could rephrase it, to be or to become. That is the question. And our lives are full of becoming, and we never arrive and the child's life is full of being. Some of us wait till the weekend to be happier. <laughs> now, imagine asking a child, say, could you wait till Saturday, <laughs> you know, to demonstrate a bit of happiness? It's so ludicrous. So depressing. Yes, anybody else? Here. Thank you. I find the philosophy that you speak of very, very, very attractive. And as an intellectual level, I find it even more attractive. But I'm also, at this stage of my life, very aware that I come from a creation story that is so, so deeply rooted after generation after generation. So that at a practical level, I find I have been conditioned to respond and behave and like right and wrong, a whole assumption. Yes. And a whole society, I'm part of a society that's rooted way back in that creation story of Genesis and all that was built on it. Yes. And although I find the philosophy so attractive, I find that, con the con not the conflict, but the living of it against all that conditioning is a horror that I find very, very difficult. Yes, and that is the power of habit. But the way to approach it is do not count your successes, do not count your failures. You simply accept each moment as a challenge. You've got to be like a recovering alcoholic, a day you know, or a moment at a time. Does that make sense? What we do is we count our failures and get depressed by them. But the reality is, if you went into the whole scene of good and bad a moment ago, that does not stop you being perfectly free now. You can always take your freedom now. And there is no past that can master you unless you allow it to master you. You can enslave the body of a man but you cannot enslave his spirit. Man is free, and it's up to him to take it. 
And he cannot say, well, I've had 30 years of this, or 50 years, or 500 years of the opposite. He can still always take his freedom now. And again, just to take it from the Bible, in the story in the Bible, you know, one man comes to the vineyard, as far as I remember, say, early in the morning to work. And then another man comes at midday, and one comes late in the afternoon, and then one comes at about five to six. The first man works, say, eight hours or ten hours, and the last man only works five minutes. But the master of the vineyard pays them all equally. The point of that story is to tell you that it doesn't make any difference for how long you've been working. When the clock chimes, you get your full reward. So a man can have been miserable up to the age of 60, and he can be perfectly happy on the instant of his 60th birthday. So the thing is this is, yes, let's say there has been conditioning, and that has not been particularly helpful, and it has a certain strength. But it's not stronger than you. And again, it's very important to get everything into perspective. Some people will say, well, I'm dominated by an idea. And one should look at that and say, well, okay, well, there's a body and there's a mind. And ideas reside in the mind. And let's say, how many ideas reside in this mind of mine? Can I draw on? And let's say we say a billion ideas. And so this represents one billionth of all the ideas that reside in this mind. So this means that this idea is the size of one billionth of my mind, which is only a part of myself. So how could it dominate the whole? This would be like an ant dominating an elephant. It would be a pretty pathetic elephant. So without being hard, do not be a pretty pathetic elephant. <laughs> All these are just ideas in the mind. And behind that, there is that which is eternally free. And if the mind can be directed to acknowledging the presence of that, it goes free in an instant. And then the challenge is to remain there. And of course, habit will take the mind away again. But always bring it back. And the first thing to do is never, ever, ever criticize yourself. Your children are free of self-criticism completely free of it. And you, you see this with a little child, if you take a very young child, a one or a two-year-old child, and it looks at itself in the mirror, it is completely satisfied with the reflection. Are you satisfied with your reflection? Or do you think you were constructed on a Monday? <laughs> <laughs> by trainees. <laughs> now, how is it that a child, and, and there are some incredibly ugly little children, and there are some incredibly, <laughs> incredibly beautiful children, and yet all are satisfied. And you know why they're satisfied? Because they do not think that what is looking back from the mirror is themselves. Whereas you and I think it is. We think that that reflection is me. We think it's a reflection of me. It's a reflection of a body. That's all it is. Yes, anybody else? There's a lady there at the back. Um, I just wonder, does it all seem very irresponsible that you could just forget about it? 
sounds like you know the way you feel you should be responsible for certain things or for certain things you did. Yes, because you're not asked to carry yesterday. If I can just bring God into it. God has not ordained that you carry yesterday in your heart. This is why, again, Jesus said, take no thought for the morrow. You're not being asked to carry yesterday in your heart. You're only being asked to carry the present moment. It's actually irresponsible or not responsible to carry the past in your heart. To be responsible is to be able to respond. And if you wish to be able to respond, you have to be in the present moment. By you and I carrying the past in our hearts, we are unable to respond to the present and to everybody around us. So we're actually being irresponsible. Our responsibility is to be ourselves, to be our true selves, and to manifest that everywhere and to act as a reminder to others who may have forgotten. You're not asked to carry your so-called sins. And this is absolutely obvious from the way even life is designed. Every day, it is permissible to sleep in a 24-hour period. It is permissible to put down everything. So let's say you were a mother and you were a wife and you're a daughter to somebody and a friend of somebody else and maybe an employee of some firm. Every night, you put it all down. You put down the burden of it. Now, when you wake up tomorrow, just pick it up as a play. Let's say you had a sort of a yearning to be an actress. And let's say I asked you, would you like to play Quasimodo? So we could organize a great big hump for your back and you'd be allowed to swing in the bells and terrorize beautiful young damsels. Most people would say, what a part. God, I just love, you know, could I have two humps instead of one? <laughs> We would love to play the part of Quasimodo. But would anybody like to be Quasimodo? And nobody wants to be Quasimodo. Well, don't be a mother or a daughter or a friend or an employee or employer any of these things. Be yourself and play all these parts. They're not who you are. They're simply an opportunity for you to reveal yourself through them. And then all the parts are delightful. It is fun to play Quasimodo. And it is fun to play mother or father or daughter or any of these things. But being them is to enter into some limited function. And it's trying to put a quart of milk into a pint milk bottle. Man is much greater than the functions that he or she plays. So... Lasting happiness will never be found in the parts. And again, I've said this before, but if you ask yourself, but where is happiness? It's a good question to ask. Where is happiness? So you could try and experience it and say, where does it arise? Do you find it arising sort of about six inches in front of your nose? A little sort of happy cloud? No, you don't. You always find it arising within you. It's the only place it ever arises within you. So what does that tell you about happiness? 
It tells you that happiness is within you. So don't look for it outside in roles or objects of the creation. Look within and then you find it. And having found it, you express it everywhere. You bring it with you to every part you play. It is, it is actually very exciting. And what it is, it's, it's a tremendous challenge. It's not a defeating type of challenge, but a challenge that will um, demand everything from you. Years ago, maybe about, only about five or six years ago, I found that when I woke up in the morning, I was in a bad humor. And this was a shock to me, because I always thought I was sort of a happy sort of guy. But every time I woke up in the morning, I was in a bad humor. And I couldn't work out why. Why did this bad humor descend on me so quickly after my eyes opened? And it was an idea that the minute I wake up, everybody's going to be asking things of me. They're either going to be asking me questions in talks like this, or, <laughs> or the, if they're my family, they'll be asking me for money, or in business, they'll be asking me for advice. Be, I'm going to be pulled at like a lump of meat all day. And I didn't like it. I much preferred sleep. And then I read this remarkable statement from the Shankaracharya. And he said that man is naturally conscious and blissful. It's a very simple phrase, and I happened to be reading one of the conversations, and there it was. Man is naturally conscious and blissful. Every morning I woke up and this little dark cloud would appear, I would just repeat this sentence. Man is naturally conscious and blissful. And the cloud would disperse. And then having got no welcome from me for X number of months, it went away, and it doesn't come back. So, but that's a wonderful challenge. Don't mind that life challenges you. It's just demanding all of you to face it. And you'll find this as well, that when you give all of yourself to anything, it's extremely fulfilling. Some people like hanging off cliffs because it demands all of them. Some people like driving cars at 250 miles per hour because it demands all of them. So if you give all of yourself to life, you will get everything in return. So accept the challenge. Yes, anybody else? Is there any space in there for reflection? Reflection in your day for a life and gratitude to the Lord for it? Yes, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, it depends on your nature, but to express gratitude for all that one has received is absolutely a reasonable thing to do. And also it is reasonable to reflect on your day, not with an idea of saying, whoa, I'm a sinner type of thing, but to come to understand how this body-mind-heart works. So you may find, as this gentleman spoke of, you know, repeating patterns, that one makes the same errors over and over again. And it is good to reflect on the day, to see, well, how has the day been lived? And that which was not useful to it, to the day, then you can make a resolution that tomorrow that will not be practiced. And so in that way, you leave your past behind. So it's extremely useful to do. Sometimes we only reflect after major events. You know, a wife dies or you, know, you lose a job or you have that first heart attack or 
people start giving you their seat on the bus and, <laughs> and you thought you were still 25, all of that sort of stuff. And it's such a pity that we wait for these sort of extraordinary moments to reflect on our lives, because 10, 15, 25 years can pass. It is very good every day to have time to oneself, just to reflect, how has this day been lived? And ideally, you should be happy to die every night. Ideally. You should say, tonight, I can say that this life has been well lived. You should not go out screaming for more. So it is very, very good to reflect. But it shouldn't be indulgence. It should be just true reflection. You know, we do give ourselves to the needs of others, like family and uh, employers and society. And it is valid to take time to oneself. It is not an act of selfishness. It is really an act of preparation so that you can re-enter society or the world let's say, a better man or woman. So all of you should find that time. Five or ten minutes each day. Excellent. Yes, anybody else? John, just here. I was just interested in asking you about how to deal with the future in that we all have needs, our hopes, our dreams, our Depending on your circumstances, you, you could be supporting a family, so you could have the need to plan for the future in lots of different ways. I'm just wondering how you reconcile that with the need not to think about the future and to be present. Well, if you don't know the future, you shouldn't plan for it. Because what are you planning for if you don't know what it's going to be? So what we do do is we try to imagine a future. We say, all right, I could get multiple cirrhosis or some horrendous disease, so I better have a policy to cover that. And there's a golf club nearby, so maybe a, a wayward ball might hit me on the head, so I better have a policy for that one as well. And so we start to see if we can even out the bumps of an imagined future life. Or we plan fantastic events like I love the sun and I'm going to have a home in the south coast of France and all these sort of things. It's all imagination. It's all imagination. You don't have the gift of prophecy. If you want to produce your future, you produce it now. If you drink moderately now, you will not have your hangover tomorrow. That's the way it works. The way to live life is to give your full to now. Now, so we understand that truly. And I've used this example before. Say you're going to go on your summer holidays uh, and you want to go on July the 1st. It's not a matter of turning up at Dublin Airport on July the 1st and say you're a member of the School of Philosophy and Economic Science <laughs> and that we live in the present moment and... Uh, <laughs> and I'm getting on the next plane out of here. This is practical philosophy. So, there may be a present need to book your holiday now for July the 1st. But don't start living it now. Don't start allowing the mind to dream about what it's going to do on the second day of the holiday, or the third day, and all these sorts of things. 
It's much better to let life come to you. But be a present being. So, there will be needs which relate to future events, but they are current needs. So, for example, if a person wishes to go to university, let's say, or to become a doctor, and there's X number of points required by the system, there will be a current need to study. But don't do next July's exam in February and March and April and May and June in your heart. Only do the exams once. Now, if you do that, if you just ask yourself, what is the need now? And you can ask yourself this many, many times during the day. It's a wonderful thing for clarifying the mind. And if you're a very busy person, you can say, what is the primary need now? And the mind will present. It'll say, make that phone call. Go and talk to so-and-so. Write that letter. Have a cup of tea. And then simply give yourself to that primary need. And then when it's finished, ask yourself, well, what is the primary need now? And life is organized in such a way that never too much is happening or needs to happen now. Now is such a short period of time. An awful lot couldn't be happening. And if you do that, what you find that a tremendous space arises in your life. You actually execute far more actions, far, far more, but you now have all the space. It is as if time multiplies in a colossal way. So that's how you do it. You ask yourself, what is the need now, or what is the primary need now? And if there's a need now to book a holiday, well, book the holiday. But there is no need now to imagine what you're going to be doing on your second day of your holiday. Well, I suppose, really, what I was coming from, more than imagining what a holiday will be like, it's more like the need to maybe plan or put a structure or something in your place for, for your family that needs a bit of forethought and a bit of planning, just so that you, know, you feel comfortable within yourself that in five or ten years' time that whatever financial needs or emotional needs or whatever will be looked after. But I, I take from what you're saying that the reality is that if you feel the need to plan that or to deal with that, you activate that in the present moment. Is that Well, if, if you want to take care of your family in five years' time, take care of them now. Or else they mightn't be there in five years' time. They might have got fed up waiting. <laughs> it's a very important point, this. You know, I remember once, this is many, many years ago, in the 70s, I was in um, Budapest. It was part of the Soviet bloc. And I was brought into some of these houses, which have now been converted into you know, many, many, many flats. But these were absolute stately mansions. I mean, unbelievable building, beautiful architecture, and obviously owned by very rich families before the revolution and all that. Uh, what struck me, it was very obvious that when they, people built these houses, they did not imagine that there would ever be a communist overthrow. They thought they were going to own this forever. So do not imagine what your families will need in five years' time. You don't know how life is going to unfold. What you do know is the needs that exist now. You'll always know that. Just come into the present and it becomes obvious. And if you take care of the present, you take care of the future. If you don't take care of the present, 
when the future comes to you, you won't be able to handle it. I've said this before, but a solicitor that I know, and at this stage he was about 45 or 48, and I met with him and I asked him uh, how his business, and he said it was absolutely excellent, and he said he'd been very, very busy, and he'd made an awful lot of money in the last three years. And he said, I'm going to really start living my life now. And I knew that he'd forgotten how to live and that he wouldn't really live his life now. He'd spent 45 years postponing living his life now and had forgotten what it meant. And he thinks it means having that apartment in Spain and having three holidays as opposed to two. Four holidays as opposed to one or whatever. And that's not what life is. And if you ask yourself, how long can your mind stay in the present moment during the day? That's the only time you're living. The rest of the time you're imagining. So in terms of living, we're all about under six months old. And five months of those were in the first six months of our life. <laughs> we die so young, and we are eternal. Yes? Sorry, I just wanted to ask a question in relation to the drinking tonight and the hangover tomorrow. Yes. You've got a problem, have you? Uh, <laughs> some would say that, yes. <laughs> no, my question was in relation to the fact that there are lots of people who are constantly living in the now and preparing their lives now, and yet the absolute most awful things happen to them that they could not foresee, which yes. they didn't bring about, you know, obvious things like losing a child through someone else's hangover, you know. How do we reconcile that to ourselves in the now and in the happiness within and... Yes. No, absolutely. Well, it's a very good question. You're not in control of the events of life. And it doesn't make any difference whether you live a life as a little holy Joe or as a wild and wicked person. You're not in control of the events of life. So you don't seek to control the events of life. What you are in absolute control of is your response to the events of life. And you only learn how to respond to life by living it now. And when you learn to be present, then what others would call unbelievable adversity and would break them will not affect you. There's a stunning statement in the um, Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. It says, the events of life do not break the man, they only show what he is made of. So the thing is to make sure what you're made of. The only real adversity in life is that which you do not learn or grow from. And you can learn from anything. Lots of tragedies before lots of people. The thing to do then is to accept that tragedy, grow from it, and then help others to meet it as well. And so then you can be of help to others. So, grief may befall you. But then you can learn to transcend grief. And then you can be of immense help to others for whom grief befalls. 
there is nothing good or bad in this world except what you do with it. That's what makes it good or bad. Some people weep on the death of their wife. Some dance on the grave. Some want to die and some want to live. It's a very interesting thing if you allow the image to form in your mind. When a baby is born, everybody, other than the baby, is really happy. Right? <laughs> and they're saying, isn't it wonderful? Life. And this little thing is squalling its head off. And then life. Now, everybody around, the one being born, is full of happiness. But the one being born doesn't seem to be manifesting any happiness. Now then, let's take the death scene. Everybody around the one dying is full of misery. How do you know the one dying isn't saying? <laughs> well, they're just being polite when they say, I'm going to miss you. <laughs> you see, we think that life is a wonderful thing and death is a terrible thing. Well, maybe they're neither wonderful nor terrible. And we should find out. But we should, first of all, become such a person that can meet the events of life. And that is possible. And the it takes main a lot of time, though. I mean, you, you have to go through these awful things in order to learn that about yourself. And this well, you don't have to go through all of them. You don't have to say, all right, well, I'm going to try alcoholism this year. And <laughs> would anybody like to beat me over the head with a saucepan so I can go through that one? You don't have to go through everything. The intelligent way to do it is this. It's a bit like when you were being taught mathematics, say, as, as a child. It is necessary to learn your tables. So you cannot master mathematics without the tables. So and let's say you went up to 10 times or 12 times tables. And all you did was you learned off specific answers to specific questions. And you went over them again and again, 7 sevens are 49, 9 eights are 72, etc., etc. Don't ask me a difficult question. <laughs> so, right. so we learned them off over and over and over again. For a while, if your nasty older brother said to you 13 times 17, you said you didn't want to play that game anymore. <laughs> 7 times 7 was complete light for you, whereas 13 times 17, if he said to you the answer is 3, you would have said, is it really? 3? You know, you would have no idea, because it would be total darkness to you. However, by practicing those tables over and over again, one day an understanding arose of multiplication. And now you had the freedom to meet every new sum. The fact that it wasn't met before was no hindrance to you. You now knew the laws of mathematics. So the key to life is, okay, life will deal its experiences to you. But it's to get behind them to the laws that are operating. And then you'll be able to understand and then you don't have to meet everything. Once you've got the laws or the understanding of the laws, you'll be able to deal with all situations. So that's the key to it. But you, you will not come to this understanding of what's behind the superficial front unless you're in the present moment. It's like when somebody, say, on the phone, and you ask somebody, how are you? If you don't really listen to their answer, if they say, I'm fine, it's only by hearing the sound in their voice. It's not by the word. The words will not tell you actually how they are. It's the sound of the voice. You have to get behind the words. 
And then you will understand, maybe I should call around to this person, or whatever. But if you just take the words, you'll be fooled. So if you just take the events, like the, the death of a husband or a child or something like that, you're going to be fooled. Life will fool you. But if you get behind the events, it will reveal itself to you. And the truth of the matter is, it's a great play, a stunning play, and it only offers happiness. But it gives you the free will to take misery if that's the perversion you're into. Now, yes. It's just in regards to, um, you mentioned a couple of times throughout the responses that you would be of better benefit to people as well. So if you could just maybe speak a little bit on people having maybe a higher purpose than themselves in life. Well, everybody has a higher purpose than themselves. You didn't come into this world for yourself. The reality is, as a human being, you always have surplus capacity. So just to take a situation, I'll just make it a financial situation. An ordinary, able-bodied human being is capable of generating sufficient wealth to raise a family, which might be a husband or wife and a few children. It is not difficult to generate more than one needs for oneself. Everybody comes into this world with some talents. It doesn't make any difference what they are, and it doesn't make any difference if others have much more than you. And again, that's the story from the Bible of person, the servant with one talent, or the servant with two, I think it was, and the servant with five. Your obligation is to turn your one talent into two, or two into four, and the five into ten. Every one of us has a talent. It doesn't make any difference if we're limited intellectually, or emotionally, or physically. There will be some area in which we shine, or can shine, or cause others to shine. And our purpose in life is not only to travel our life, but to make it easy for others to travel. So every human being should look to his or her surplus and share that with the world. It's not a life of deprivation. It's simply a life of sharing your surplus. So if you've got time on your hands, give it to people. If you have understanding, pass it on. You have a heart which has the capacity to love all, so love everybody. You only need one wife or one husband and a few children, that's enough. But it doesn't stop you loving all the other children. It doesn't stop you loving all of mankind or all the creatures of this universe. So, we all are special. We all have a special function. You know, no matter how great a team is, if you take one person out of the team, it plays differently. And we all have a part to play in this great drama. And if we don't play it, we make a difference to everybody. One thing which is quite remarkable is we undervalue our presence. We say things like, well, there's 180 going to the wedding. It won't make much difference if I don't go. And in order to get over our guilt, we send the present. Not our presence, just the stupid present. 
that picture frame that's going to be in the attic for the next 50 years, right? So the only thing you ever have to really offer somebody else, the only thing which is your own, is your presence. So when somebody is talking to you, listen to them. And when you're talking to someone, really listen to what you're saying. Remember, you're asking them to listen to it, so you might as well listen to it to yourself. You'll find out how entertaining it is. <laughs> it is very important for everybody to acknowledge their own, in a way, special purpose. Some parts may be on the stage, and some may be backstage. It's like, I've used this analogy before, if you take rally cross and you ask people, can you name a rally cross driver? Some people will be able to answer. They'll be able to answer one or two or three or four world-famous rally cross drivers. If you ask the same people, will name one of the map readers, you'll find very, very few can name a map reader. Because the world in its ignorance thinks the driver is more important than the map reader. But if you talk to a rallycross driver, he will tell you that the map reader is as important. We are all important. It's very important, important that you grant importance to every human being. If you don't grant importance to every human being, you will not be able to attend to them. One thing you'll find is whatever you grant importance to, you find it very easy to attend to. Does that make sense? People attend to things that you just cannot attend to. The reason they can attend to them is that they grant them importance. It's like your wedding video. How come everybody sleeps during your wedding video? You're wide awake <laughs> and they're asleep because it's important to you and it's slightly less important to them. Now, if you grant everybody importance, including yourself, you will find that you can give yourself fully to them. And you'll go beyond your likes and dislikes and all of these sort of things. And the stunning thing is, when you give everybody importance, you find a remarkable thing is that everybody's extremely interesting. Maybe even as interesting as you. <laughs> Which would be quite an achievement. <laughs> yes, maybe one last question. I'm curious about your view of the past, what happened yesterday or the day before, and that our past doesn't really matter, yes. that it's the present and the current moment that we should be focusing on, that history is gone and we can do nothing about it. I'm curious, and I wonder what your responses and comments would be if this room was a room full of criminals and murderers. What do you mean, if? <laughs> well, the man who founded the School of Philosophy, Leon McLaren, once met with a group of people who worked as teachers. So he asked to meet them. There were about 10 or 15 or 20 of them. And he was going to take the group, the philosophy group, but with these teachers. As he started, he said, what are you? And they said, we're teachers. He said, no, you're not. You're students. I'm the teacher. <laughs>
You're only a teacher when you're in the classroom. There are no criminals in this room because there's no criminal behavior in this room. There's just human beings. You don't have to be male in this room. You don't have to be female. You don't have to be young or old or anything. You can just be. And what you should do is always meet what's there. If you were to be judged by your past, when? Why shouldn't we judge you when you were two years of age and weren't nappy trained? Why shouldn't we take that into account? We shouldn't take it into account because it's of no relevance. It's of no relevance. The thing to do is, is to set a man free from his past. If a man is a criminal, for example, or he, he carries out criminal activity, and he is caught and he is sentenced under the laws of a country, and he fulfills that sentence, it is very important that you do not look on him as a criminal when he comes out. The law recognizes him as a free man, and you should do the same. That wasn't my question. All right, well then, if you could repeat it. I said, what would your response be in relation to forgetting the past if you were speaking to a group of murderers or criminals? I mean, your response. Well, I wouldn't be speaking to a group of murderers and criminals. If I was speaking, I would be speaking to a group of listeners. So you're saying that their past doesn't matter. Right. They shouldn't be judged by that. You asked me what I would do is I would not judge them as criminals. And they should not be judged by their past. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Should not be judged by their past. But they the should criminal be criminal activities have happened in the past. That's why they're charged with and judged in the court of law. Yes. Because of their past. Yes. You're saying that's wrong? No. Well, no. I'm saying that they I'm saying that now they should be judged as they are. When a man commits a criminal act a judge will take into account whether there is remorse or not. He will judge the man now. If the man says now, I don't give a tinker's curse what I did and I will do it again, he will judge him for his present state. If he says, I am heartily sorry for what I did, it was a grievous wrongdoing on my part and I will never repeat it again, he will take that into account. Absolutely. That's a judge taking something into account. Yes. But he's taking into account what the person has done in the person's past. Yes. You're saying the person's past shouldn't be taken into yes. account at all. Yes, I'm saying I'm not in the role of judge. You asked me but what you're would in I the role of philosopher in this Absolutely. And so as a philosopher, I will not judge you by your past. I will meet you as you are now. This is what all the sages have done. The reason the Pharisees had such difficulty with Jesus is that they kept on seeing publicans and tax collectors and prostitutes and he kept on seeing the light of the self in each one of them. They saw fishermen. They saw a carpenter's son. Now if you look at a savior of this world and you see a carpenter's son then you're not looking. Your eyes are blind. And the idea is, is to look into the heart of the man who, or woman who is there now. So if you ask me what I would do, if I'm talking and people are listening, I will look into the hearts of the listeners. And whatever is there now is what will be met and responded to now. And will your response to a potential criminal, in let's say you were in Mount York, yeah. giving a lecture to the yes. 
would you tell them they have done wrong or done right in what they have, in what have brought them? If they ask me, if they ask me, I will answer them. Yes, of course I will. Well, what will your response be? I've just told you my response. It's like this. I happen to be the head of the School of Philosophy, and people come in to me for advice at times. Some are intelligent, some are stupid. Some are exceptionally nice people. Some are very narrow in their hearts. They're mean, selfish people. Some are very young and some are very old. And some are very rich and some are very poor. They are all treated the same. It is the only way you can run a school of philosophy. You treat every single human being as a soul in eternity in search of truth. And if you can't do that, you resign from the job. So that's what I would do. So that's, you that's tell them that their past is to be forgotten and it doesn't matter? No. You asked me what my response would be. I've told you my response. Now, what I would say to them would be determined by what questions they ask me. So whatever they ask me, and whatever understanding arises here, I will offer that to them. And if they don't ask me about their past, I will not tell them about their past. But if they do ask me about their past and what is my opinion, I will offer a reasoned view if one is capable of that. So. Thank you very much. Good night.